What's really important about this renovation is making sure that the museum has everything it needs to be not only a proper repository, but also a megaphone from which we can broadcast our message. I'm Sarah Casconi, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. In December 2020, Congress approved funding for a new Smithsonian Museum dedicated to women's history to be built on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. But our nation's capital has actually been home to a dedicated women's museum, the National Museum of Women in the Arts, since 1987. The institution, founded by Wilhelmina Cole Holliday and her husband Wallace, was the first of its kind in the world. Its mission was simple to educate viewers about women's long-overlooked contributions to art history. In its 36 years of existence, the museum has amassed an impressive collection of over 6,000 works by more than 1,500 artists, both international and from the U.S., including Frida Kahlo, Bert Morisot, and Louise Bourgeois, as well as contemporary figures such as Judy Chicago, Nan Golden, and Amy Sherald. Less than six months after Wilhelmina's death in March 2021, the museum closed for its first major renovation, a planned $67.5 million project slated to take two years. The work has included a revamp of the performance hall, adding a new learning commons with a research library and education studios where there were once offices, as well as 15% more exhibition galleries, plus behind-the-scenes space for collection storage and conservation. On the eve of its reopening, Artnet News spoke with NIMWA director Susan Fisher-Sterling about the institution's past, present, and future, and the work that still needs to be done to ensure proper recognition for women artists. Susan, we're so excited here at Artnet about the museum's reopening. It's going to be such a great thing for D.C. and for the art world in particular. And for our readers who don't know your museum, I'd love to kind of start at the beginning. I read that the founders, the Holidays, were inspired to found Nimois after they encountered a still life by the 17th century Flemish painter Clara Peters while they were traveling in Europe, and then they weren't able to learn anything about her. Then they actually found out that Jansen's History of Art, which is the standard textbook for art history, didn't have any women artists at all. So that was kind of, I understand, the seed. How did the museum kind of come to be from there? And what was its original mission? So from the Clara Peters, the holidays really got the idea that they would hone their collection. They had been collecting a few things here and there, but it was both men and women. And Mrs. Holiday had received some advice from a friend, the collector of pop art known as Richard Brown Baker, that it would be great for her and Wally to have a focus for the collection. They all of a sudden found this focus after this visit to the Prado where they saw the painters. And so they began to ask every time they would go into a gallery, do you have any work by women? They like to travel a lot and they especially liked historical works. So they would make this entree and the gallerists often would say, well, we don't have anything. And then Mrs. Holiday would give them her card and she would say, well, call me when you do. And so she was already proselytizing for this idea. That is really how they began to amass the collection. And 
at one point they were looking at some work and they noticed there was a tremendous disparity between the cost of the Lavinia Fontana and a work by a male artist of the same period. And Mr. Holiday turned to Mrs. Holiday and said, well, maybe it's because it's a woman. And so they also discovered that that was one of the issues too. So it was not only that these artists had been overlooked, but they were not being collected. And so that is really what started to happen for them in the late 70s and early, especially in the early 80s. At that time, they amassed a group of maybe three, 400 works, and they had no idea that they were going to begin a museum. Mrs. Holiday really didn't have that in her head, but Nancy Hanks, who was the first chair of the National Endowment for the Arts, she once said to Mrs. Holiday, Billy, you've ruined me. Every time I go into a museum across the country, I ask them to see their works by women artists, and there are almost none hanging on the walls. You really need to start a museum. So the impetus was both the collecting, but also the idea that there was this public service aspect involved. And so they decided to take the collection and create the museum. 1981, they incorporated. By 1985, they had purchased this building. And in 1987, the museum opened. And the building, which I love, was a Masonic temple built in 1908. So it was traditionally a space that would have not admitted women. And now it's a temple to women's art, which I think is so perfect. Yes. Also, our Casser Wing, which is our annex galleries, used to be a porno parlor called the DC Pleasure Palace. So the combo between the Masons (laughs) and the Pleasure Palace. And then you think about this building, which is a flat iron building, and it is a wedge-shaped building pointed directly at Treasury in the White House, which I like to call the Delta of Venus. And the building is a national landmark, historic landmark. So you had to be careful with the exterior. But tell me, when did you decide that the time was right for a big renovation? And what were some of the things that you really felt that the museum needed to take it into the next chapter? I think we're a little late to the 21st century is probably one of the ways I would describe it. But when the holidays took over the Masonic Temple, they really were able to take a very decrepit building and get it up and running again and made it into Mrs. Holiday's vision for what would honor women artists. But even with good stewardship and good maintenance, 30 some odd years later, buildings are ready for overhauls. And then there are new standards that come about. And obviously our goal, especially as a repository for so much important work by women, We want to make sure that our climate control conditions, et cetera, are the best they can be, that our galleries are also the most commodious they can be for works of art. And so what's really important about this renovation is making sure that the museum has everything it needs to be not only a proper repository, but also a megaphone from which we can broadcast our message. Beside the gorgeous expanded galleries, one of my favorite things are these conduit trays that are up in the ceiling. And what's great about that is that means everything we need for streaming programming, everything we need for connectivity, for interactive kiosks, etc., is all in the ceiling and we know where it is. And that's good because that means there's no longer people threading things through the ceiling and watching people have their feet fall through the ceiling as they try to bridge those conduits through the museum's interior. And so we're wired for the next century 
which is what we need to be. And then also you have these great new spaces like the expanded gallery and the education and public program studio, a completely new performance hall. So we took everything down to the studs and purpose-built it, which is incredible. And of course, I'm sure it wasn't an easy decision to close for two years. You're the only museum really of your kind. How did you make sure that you were continuing your mission and connecting with audiences and making sure that people were still thinking about women artists while your doors were closed? Yeah. So in a really weird way, the pandemic hit and then we were closed for a good part of that time. And what we were able to do unexpectedly is concentrate a lot on our social media and all of our digital work. So 85% of the staff time was really moved over to experimenting in the digital realm. So by the time the building actually closed for good for renovation, we had a beautiful Sonia Clark show once we had a break in the pandemic for a while, and then we closed for this renovation. And during that time, we'd already done all this experimenting with digital programming, whether it was the Art Chats at Five or a project we had with the Baltimore Museum of Art, which was Art Exchange, or the Women, Arts and Social Change programming, our Fresh Talks that we had figured out how to do effectively online. And so there was a steady drumbeat of programming throughout the time that we were closed. And of course, because people were used to being at home and were used to having programming, we were able to continue to do the work without being in the building. Our hashtag five women artists campaign also, which is something we would do in March most years, we were able to expand that to a full year round project. And that's involved as many as 1500 cultural institutions across the globe. So it was that kind of reach. And It's a long answer, but the good news is after all that digital programming, we have a strategy now that's in place for how to continue to implement digital, which is part of the way in which we do our outreach most effectively. I love the museum's Five Women Artists campaign, and that's kind of challenging the everyday person on the street, on social media, as it were, Mm -hmm. to see if they can name Five Women Artists. Because for a lot of people, it's more challenging than any of us would like to think. Why do you think that campaign has been so successful? And do you think that it's had a real impact in changing the number of people who are able to meet that challenge as small as it is? I definitely know it's had impact because we've had places like the Uffizi sign our pledge which was one of the campaigns we did, please sign the pledge to include more women artists on the wall of your museum. And so the director of the Uffizi who came here to speak in the Women Arts and Social Change programming, he signed the pledge that year. And we also did a museum hack with the Tate. We took over some of their digital media outputs during Women's History Month a number of years ago. So I think when you partner and you also have the outreach, it's effective. The idea behind five women artists, hashtag five, really came from Mrs. Holiday's question that she asked before the museum began. She would start her slide lecture with the question to the audience, can you name three women artists? Well, once the audience got good and they could name three, which was usually Cassatt, O'Keefe, and maybe Grandma Moses or someone like that, she upped it to five. And then they were stumped again. So what we're really hoping for... That's so sad. (laughs) ...is that we can go from five 
to 10. And I think you have to have targets. And I think that's a worthy goal. So to circle back to the renovations, Mm -hmm. I love that you hired a female-run architecture firm, Sandra Vicchio and Associates, to lead the project. What was their vision for the renovation and how have they kind of improved the facility and the visitor experience as a whole? I really also love the fact that we were able to hire Sandra because she's a preservation architect. And a lot of projects now, you have very high-profile architects making these great new buildings. But we really wanted to stay where we are because the museum's home is two blocks from the White House and also really accessible from Metro Center. And so we're in the heart of the part of D.C. that is very active culturally. And because it's a 1908 building, we really needed to do a preservation plan and a study to make sure that the building was going to be able to stand for another 100 plus years. That was really the first idea, was to make sure that the building was sound. And after that, what was important was to maintain the grandeur of the Great Hall because it has some of the most beautiful architectural decoration in Washington, D.C. But equally important, it was to make sure that the galleries really functioned like great contemporary galleries. And that has been achieved on the second and third and also part of the fourth floor where we carved out a whole new set of gallery spaces. From there, Things like the storage facilities, both for our archival materials in the Library and Research Center, because we do collect archives of women artists. That archival material is now in proper environmentally safe conditions. We also redid all of our art storage. And as an art historian, I never thought about HVAC, heating, air conditioning, and cooling. But it's absolutely essential to making sure that these works survive for centuries to come. And so the whole package was a phenomenal investment. But honestly, we looked at the possibility for a second, a millisecond, of going and creating a new building. And that would have been three, potentially four times as costly. So we really maximized our space. And it's a great mid-sized museum and easy to come and visit and really have that intimate exchange with artworks without getting so tired as you do with some of the really big museums. The inaugural show, which is called The Sky's the Limit, it's going to feature monumental sculptures and immersive installations from 12 contemporary women artists. And I understand that some of these works are at a scale that previously would have been challenging, if not impossible, for the museum display. And some of the renovations have really helped with your capabilities for dealing with especially heavy or hanging works. So can you tell us a little bit about that show and what people can expect and who's going to be there? We have a lot of works hanging from what's called Unistrut, which is the hanging system that allows us to tie into the ceiling, which we never had before. The idea behind the exhibition is women have always done these process-based immersive art and that they were really the pioneers of that in the 50s and 60s. I think of Nangudi and others who really used the entire space of the gallery to create their works. And so what you'll see are folks like multimedia sculptor Rena Banerjee. We have two monumental-sized standing sculptures of hers. As you come in the galleries, you're actually greeted with Davina Simo's bells. Her bells were recently shown in Brooklyn on the waterfront, but the bells 
are something you can interact with. So from the minute you walk into the museum, you actually can please touch. We ask you to ring the bells. That in itself creates a different atmosphere in the galleries. We have a beautiful hanging sculpture by Alison Saar, also Cornelia Parker, that has come into the collection from her installation called Seven Pieces of Silver. With the new lighting that we have, it just shimmers on its very thin cords. And that was a piece we never could hang before. And then you have these giant Ursula von Reidingsvart at the end of the exhibition. And we showed Ursula's installation called Contour of Feeling, her major exhibition from some years ago. And so it's really nice to have her work in the galleries again. But these works just tower over you. So whether it's Shanique Smith or Yuriko Yamaguchi, all the works really do fold off the wall. They hang at angles that seem to defy gravity. And I think the most interesting part about it for me is that a lot of these works are in the collection and they're pieces we were never able to show before. So the galleries, as they're redone, are providing that opportunity for us, including, I think, what might be the longest photograph that has ever been made. Oh, who's that by? Mariah Robertson. It's a really beautiful abstract photograph that goes on for yards and yards and yards. So that's the inaugural exhibition. Of course, there's also rehanging the collection. Mm -hmm. And something that Nimwa does a little bit differently than other museums is that they don't arrange the collection chronologically, which I've read is because at most museums that do that, it kind of gives women and artists of color the short end of the stick because they're kind of stuck at the end after you've kind of been looking for a long time and your eyes are tired. Here in New York, we just had the opening of Judy Chicago's first big New York museum retrospective, and she included something she's calling the City of Ladies, mm -hmm. which is a whole selection of 90 or so works by women artists throughout art history. And she presented that, and her argument is that these works by other women who she may have known when she was starting out she may not have known she may not have known even before this show was curated but she feels that there are certain through lines that connect women that create like an alternate canon for women artists separate from the concerns of male artists that there are certain things that kind of set women's art apart is that something that you believe i'm looking forward to seeing judy's exhibition at the new museum let me put it to you that way and obviously we have her work at the museum and she has been extremely supportive of the museum I think we showed her first major survey. It was back in the 20-teens. For us, you're right about the chronology issue and that it sort of short circuits or short shrifts women and artists of color. But in addition, there are a lot of myths about what women are. For example, the idea of woman as nature. And so we have a thematic gallery called Landmarks that actually says something else about women and nature than thinking about women equals nature and men equals rationality. So a lot of the galleries are thematically based in order to prove a point or to bust a myth. 
And so photo credit, for example, is all about giving credit to women progenitors of the movement toward making photography as fine art. So you see Julia Margaret Cameron or Berenice Abbott, and you go as far to the contemporary field as Lala Sadi with her Bullets Revisited, which is a huge, probably 10-foot, three-tripartite photograph. We also look at the idea of home and maker and transforming from the home from a place where a woman did the work of the day to a locale that women artists like to picture in very different ways. Or our largest gallery is called Heavyweight, and it puts the lie to the idea that women work small by having some of the largest works in the collection, including uh, Shakaya Booker's Acid Rain and a huge Deborah Butterfield horse that just went into the galleries uh, yesterday. I will say my favorite gallery right now is called Seeing Red, because it shows our Lavinia Fontana, which is our earliest work. It's a young woman, 16 years of age, and she is dressed in her red Bolognese wedding gown. And so we know this is a dowry portrait. And it's paired with a new Alison Saar that we just had come into the collection, which is called Scorch Song. And you can't believe it when you see it. The continuity of the visuals on that are just striking. I'm really looking forward to visiting the museum. I can't wait. One thing that I always kind of grapple with is that there's kind of this push and pull between the importance of having spaces that celebrate women and celebrate women's achievement, which has been overlooked for so long, and also this idea that women artists are also just artists first and foremost. How do you kind of respond to criticisms that like siloing women separate from men is ultimately maybe counterproductive? And how do you balance like the need to change the narrative with the need to also just incorporate women's history alongside the known history of white men? I haven't read Katie Hessel's book, The Story of Art Without Men yet, but she's coming to speak in November. So I hope to hear more about what she has to say. But I think that she's an interesting example of someone who's arguing just for the point you mentioned, that there can be this separate history. For my part, what I feel is that because most other museums are men's museums, and still are, according to the stats that Julia Halpern and Charlotte Burns put out last year in 2022 on Artnet, we know that during the pandemic, the numbers actually for acquisition of women's work went down a bit to 10.5 from 11, and that in terms of exhibitions of work by women artists, the exhibition history is at 14%, and this is in 31 major museums across the U.S. So I kind of go back to something Mrs. Holiday used to say to me when we would talk about this issue, and she would say it would be great. It would be great if everyone were equal and we'd have half women, half men, or whatever the system is that you want to judge that by. Unfortunately, it's not that way. And so having spaces like this allows you to push that envelope and to keep that wedge, if you will, that wedge-shaped building heading in a direction that allows for parity, meaning equality or equity, in the future. The art world always likes to think that it's doing a better job along with the rest of the world. Women are just not achieving equity 
at the level at which people think they are. Because if they only have 14% of the shows, that means that 86% of the shows are still by men. And that's astonishing when you flip the stat around. It's pretty bad. Not so good. (laughs) So my sense too, and this is especially with contemporary art, we'll always be able to show women artists. And so in some ways we're helping to create what will be history in the future. I write a lot about women artists and efforts to showcase the work of women artists and the work of artists of color and different initiatives that are being done. And one of the consistent comments that I'll see from the same one or two trolls on Facebook is that, what about merit? Why should we give a megaphone? And I find it so infuriating. I'm sure you've dealt with the same annoying question. What's your response to that? Well, first of all, my response is thank you for doing as much as you're doing for women artists. And oh, you're welcome. the more that we have people like you and the more we have directors and curators who take the time to be inclusive, we create a much more equitable art ecosystem. What I say to a lot of people, and I do get a little tongue-in-cheek about that, is you had your 2,000, 3,000 years. It's our turn now. (laughs) That's great. I'm going to borrow that one. (laughs) (laughs) That, and please go into any museum space you can find. And when you see a woman artist's work, shout really loudly in the gallery, Oh, look, there's a George O'Keefe, Frida Kahlo. Take your pick, which artist, Mariah Robertson, and get people to notice that that woman artist's work is there. It's something that Mikal Hebron, who lives in L.A. and is an artist, she does the gallery tally, which also is a counting mechanism. And Mikal gave that hint one time when she was here at the museum. Just shout out loud when you see women artists in the galleries and in the museum. I love that. I, I always tell my husband, but I, maybe I'll just need to make... Raise the volume. Raise the volume. That's right. I also wondered if the museum has taken any steps to also include the work of non-binary artists. Is that something that is part of a growing mission or how do you adjust that? Yes, I think if you take a look on the museum's website, you'll see our gender identity statement. And it explicitly points out that we are collecting and exhibiting the work of artists who are non-binary. It's an important statement at this point, but one day it will become the usual. And we're looking for the time when it becomes the norm, not just for our institution, but for others. I believe in all ways that there are so many different ways in which we hold our identity, so many different buckets that make up ourselves. So that being non-binary is just another aspect of how we define ourselves differently. Obviously, these kind of identity issues and different issues about women's rights and non-binary rights can become very hot-button political issues. You're here in the heart of D.C., like you said, right across from the White House. How do you feel that the museum's mission has like become like more pointed or more important in light of the political climate? And how do you see that going forward? It's a really good question. So I'll change this a little bit to say that we try very hard to create a space that we feel is a safe space for 
discussing issues that are really important in contemporary life. I think we still believe that art is a bellwether for the way in which society thinks and that art helps to change minds. And so if you think in those terms, if you can create, and it's very difficult in a divisive political era, but if you can create that safe space for dialogue and discussion amongst people who have very different views, and if they can begin to experience art by others who they might not think of in the same way outside of the art space, they can begin to change their ideas about that protected class or group of people. And that's really the key. It's an old idea, but it's not a bad idea. But art is a bridge. For us, it's a really important bridge, not just for proselytizing for the cause of women artists, but also for having real discussion and dialogue around concrete issues that we need to face. That's so true. Do you see that the need to celebrate women's cultural contributions and to understand that women have been making vibrant, important art all along, despite the white male-dominated narrative of art history, we've been here the whole time, Do you see that need to celebrate that? Do you see that becoming more acknowledged? Do you think we're making progress? I think two things. I think, yes, certainly we're making progress. But I also think we all have a long way to go. That's part of why our mission continues to be so important. Sarah, I have to think, and I think about this when I look at the Museum of Modern Art, which was founded by three women, or I look at the Whitney Museum of American Art, which was founded by a woman and run by a woman, that these are places that nobody ever questions, even though there are other museums across the world that show modern art, or there are other places in the U.S. that show American art. I really think that the National Museum of Women in the Arts will always be a viable entity because there will always be great contemporary artists for us to show. And then we will have also helped to build this amazing history that will be part of the legacy that we have created. And so I've always believed that this museum is built to last. And I love that even though it's called National Museum, it's an international collection and it sounds like it always has been. It is international. And Part of the reason it's called National is because it's in D.C. and there are a lot of museums called National. But you would never want to call yourself international because that just doesn't mean you're international. So I had one fun question for you. You know, I know you can name five women artists, but can you name five women artists that you think our listeners might not know about and should look up and why? That's one of my favorite things. I mean, we have these great artists from the past starting with Fontana or Vijay Lebrun. But five women artists that I think people should know about, I would start with Beverly Penn from Texas. How about Remedios Barro from Mexico, born originally in Spain? Take a look at the 19th century actress Sarah Bernhardt's sculpture. There's someone people didn't know was a sculptor. And we have this amazing work called After the Tempest, which is a 19th century Pieta. I would have you certainly take a look at Alison Saar, who is a monumental figure in terms of her work in both sculpture and prints. And 
One of my favorite artists who is a photographer who I've mentioned previously is Lala Asadi or Rania Matar. All these artists are people you should know. Once you see their work, you'll understand that we don't need to talk about merit anymore. We should just throw that into the trash can. Well, you've definitely given me some food for thought with those names that some of them I know pretty well. Some of them maybe not, I have to admit. But that's one of the great things about working in our field. There's always new, wonderful artists to discover and to learn about. And that's just one of the things that I'm really looking forward to seeing the new museum. Well, and stay tuned for the first major exhibition on the east coast of Suchitra Matai. And then also we'll be doing a huge show in, I think it's 2026, of Women Artists of the Northern Baroque. Well, it sounds like there's a lot to look forward to. Thank you so much, Susan, and good luck with the opening of the museum. By the time this airs, it'll be ready to welcome visitors. So we encourage you all to get down there and visit Susan. Thanks, Sarah. It's great to be with you. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week.